0: Welcome to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. Today on Writers' Festival Radio, Peter Schneider speaks with author, journalist, and publisher Michael Hingston about his remarkable book, Try Not to Be Strange, The Curious History of the Kingdom of Redonda. It tells for the first time the complete history of Redonda's transformation from an uninhabited guano-encrusted island into a fantastical and international kingdom of writers. Here's their conversation.
1: Michael, it's, it's really good to talk to you about your, your your new book today. And one of the things that I enjoyed so much about this book, there's just so much to it, and uh, it's such a pleasure to read. But one of the things that, that I really enjoyed about the book is this notion of reality and make-believe. And as you read the story, uh, which is rooted in, in the real world and in historical events, you always have to shake your head because it's almost like um, going to a land of make-believe at the same time. And perhaps I'd like to ask you by asking you again about your discovery of this story, of this, of this place called Redonda, which is a real place and how you entered into this literary mystery.
2: Yeah. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show and it's lovely to talk to you as well. Um, The story for me started almost a decade ago. It was uh, 2013 and I had been recommended a novel by a Spanish writer named Javier Marias. And uh, the book is called All Souls. And the thing that's interesting about that book is it's a very elegant, realistic, naturalistic novel with one detail that sort of comes out of nowhere and really threw me off. And and that detail. So the book is about, um, a Spanish novelist who teaches at Oxford, uh, which the real life Maria's also did. And the detail that threw me off was that uh, along the way, um, the narrator while browsing in these rare bookshops of Oxford discovers this poet named John Gosworth and, um, We get a little mini biography of Gosworth. He had a lot of potential. He was very prolific, very eccentric. And then Marius adds this one sort of sentence that says, oh, and also Gosworth was the king of Redonda, which is an island in the Caribbean that Gosworth had never seen. And it was a funny detail. And yet it totally pulled me out of the reading experience because the rest of the book was so, as I said, like carefully observed, very realistic. And I, this detail seemed so obviously made up to me that I sort of got a bit irritated. I was thinking, why, why would he, why would Marius ruin the effect of his novel but with this obvious falsehood? And so I, uh, I was reading this on my way to work uh, on public transit. And when I got to work, the first thing I did was I looked it up to figure out where this line between fantasy and reality actually was because it was bugging me. And that's when I realized that not only was Gosworth a real person and that Redonda was a real island, but that this claim seemed to be real as well. And the detail that really, I think, pushed me over the edge and made me fall in love with this story and feel like I needed to pursue it for what turned out to be the next nine years was the fact that Javier Maria's himself, after publishing this novel, All Souls was later named the next King of Redonda. And so there was something in this idea of a writer describing a story or telling a sort of fantastical story, but then the story sort of having a life of its own and actually enveloping the author within it. Marius had been pulled into this story and uh, become sort of the latest chapter in it. And there was something so intriguing about that. I I had to see if I could get to the bottom of it.
1: It, The book is uh, many things at once. And I think you, you achieve many different things with the book. But one of the things that is clear is that this is a story that becomes a personal obsession and It's not only your obsession as the writer of this book, but this entire concept of Redonda and this 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 uh, this heritable kingship uh, has been an object of, of obsession for generations of literary figures and this is uncovered in the narrative and in the story in the book. I'd like to ask you to read us uh, a passage from the book to to set the stage or to give us a, a flavor of the text. Would, would you like to read something from the book now?
2: Absolutely. Uh, so you're exactly right. The This is a story that has um, captured the attention of people for the last 150 years uh, and pulled many writers from various genres into it. I'm going to read to you from the prologue of the book, uh, which is the story of uh, a man named Michael Howarth, who is a, um, a journalist in England who specializes in writing about the yachting industry and an email that he gets one day. That evening in front of his computer, Howarth's eye was immediately drawn to the subject line of his new email. He clicked on it and saw the message in full. Dear Michael, an old sea chest was found in the bilge of King Bob the Bald's naval flagship, the Great Peter. Within this sea chest were some water-damaged papers, including one assigning the kingship upon his demise. I attach a copy of the document. I have the original. Regards, John Duffy. P.S. I am just helping to perpetuate the whole fraud. Attached was a scanned copy of a smudged single-page royal proclamation. At the top of the page was a tricolored flag with a crest containing a crown sitting atop a castle turret. Instead of handwritten calligraphy, the main text appeared in a cursive typeface that came standard on Microsoft Word. At first glance, Howarth wasn't sure what to make of the document, but he did recognize a few keywords and names, especially the one confidently signed in actual handwriting at the bottom of the page. His old friend, Robert Williamson, who was also known in certain circles as King Bob the Bald. All at once, the pieces clicked into place. Francis, Howarth called to his wife in the next room. Yes, what is it? Howarth stared at his computer screen in disbelief. I think I'm the new King of
1: Redonda. Do you know, when I began to read this story there was this constant back and forth in my mind in terms of checking in on the fantastical elements of what is a really ripping adventure yarn and not to i guess not to gender it but you know there's an entire tradition of boys adventure stories and you know reading about far off places and islands and uh you know hidden treasures and this echoes through the non-fiction narrative that you map out that you set out because there's a quest involved as you become pulled into this story as an experienced writer as a, as a non-fiction writer as a novelist as someone who loves books and there's such rich material here in terms of the culture of books themselves of book selling antiquarian books pub culture in london um, and you keep us going as readers as you become progressively more enmeshed in this story. Uh, Michael, can you tell us about some of the things that happened to you as a writer as you dug for this story? There's there's some incredible material in this book.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So certainly from a, from a basic writing perspective, this was the most complicated project I've ever tried to take on. Um, it took so long, I think, in part just to figure out how to get it all into one story. In some ways, the story of Redonda is a story of footnotes. It's often sort of a, if people are familiar with any of the main characters in this story, these writers, they might have seen the story of Redonda or mention of it in an offhand way because people generally aren't sure how to treat it in these writers' biographies. So part of my challenge was assembling all of those footnotes and trying to build that into, uh, you know one, one story with one main through line um so in that sense it it was it was difficult and and very rewarding as well but to your second point there about the research and what else happened along the way this was the book that really threw me into the world of research um archival research real true sort of historical research and that's not to say that you know i figured it out in A couple of weeks or something, and and got it all sorted. In fact, the book has these two parallel storylines that I hope inform one another. One being the uh, the actual historical material that takes you through each era of the kingdom's history from you know eighteen eighty to twenty twenty two, and those I hope you know are are rigorous and and read properly and you know do do the job that true literary history is supposed to do. But at the same time, I was. I'm not trained as a historian. um, And my sort of uh, ad hoc education, I also thought was sort of worthy of of admitting to the reader as much as anything else. And so there is the parallel story of me discovering the kingdom and realizing that in order to get to the bottom of these things, I'm going to have to go to an archive in the UK, I'm going to have to start acquiring uh, and learning about the world of not just used books, but rare books, and learning not just um, how to how to buy uh, an out- of print book online, but actually trying to figure out certain editions of books, certain copies of books because they would have um, marginalia that I was interested in, or um, that they were printed in just such small quantities that um, it wasn't as simple as just getting the words. The presentation of the text was just as important. Um, several of the main characters are publishers. And so um, they've let little bits and scraps of the story out um, along the way in books that they've published. So it really was a a self-taught sort of ramshackle adventure. I hope that spirit, and that spirit is sort of suitably redundant as well. It's sort of a patchwork kingdom. Um, So I thought that those two storylines in parallel had the same sort of redundant spirit to them.
1: The the thing that I find just miraculous about this book is that it reads so clearly. Um, It is, as I say, it is a ripping adventure and it is the two tracks. It is your own adventure as the author, discovering uh, the story and piecing together materials that have never been assembled before in this quest to find a clear picture and to to sort of unlock the mystery of of the, the lineage of the kings of Redonda. And there are elements of travelogue in the book. And in in writing the book, you actually travel to Redonda. And there's also this very affectionate and very detailed examination of literary culture, of bibliography, and the, the mania that people have for books and printed materials. And there's something I think that's really quite exquisite about the way in which you portray these rather eccentric but incredibly dedicated writers and bibliographers uh, who have kept the flame of this story going over more than a century. Um, Prior to writing this book, had you been as enraptured or as as fascinated by the world of rare books or by by the culture of of sort of literary obsession that surrounds antiquarian bookstores and and that entire milieu, which which, which really does come to life in, in the pages of this book?
2: Yeah the short answer is no. Um I've always been interested well not not even always I came to literature sort of while I was in university is where it really sort of clicked for me. So I wasn't a obsessive childhood reader even but even until you know when I mentioned 2013 when the story started for me I would have been a person who loved to use bookstores but I wasn't thinking about it in terms of the history of the format, or like I was talking about before, individual editions. I probably didn't even know much about individual presses or um, the sort of details that make up literary culture more broadly. Redonda really was the story that turned me on to all that. And I think that's part of the reason I wanted to document it was, it wasn't that this was something I think because it was a journey of discovery for me and I just loved falling into it. Um, I want, I felt it was worth documenting because the hope is to help other people fall into that world as well. I used to be someone who I would travel to, you know, even a place like London or, or, you know, bigger cities with big old works available in, you know, the, the bookstores. And I just would, my eyes would sort of glaze over at the antiquarian stuff. I didn't understand how to decipher what I was looking at. I didn't know what was valuable. I didn't know what was interesting. I also probably hadn't, read enough to understand what I was looking for. And so even, you know, 10 years of perspective or five years of extra perspective, as you read more, I think the natural progression is to look further back. You 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 read books you love and you want to read what those writers loved. And so Redonda just provided a really convenient and accessible entry point where suddenly there was a piece of literary history that I was interested in and that I knew the contours of. So when I search for books now, Um, I suppose all collectors are sort of like this, but it's not that you understand the whole scope of things. You're looking for something very small and particular. Um, And when I tell people I'm looking for, you know, John Gosworth, for instance, and the books he published um, in these funny small print runs, um, it is an odd little corner of literary history. But when you hold those books in your hand and you start to understand it really does give you a window into the past. You see how they were produced. You can see the context that was surrounding them, and as you learn more about the writers, you of course see what they were trying to do with the work. And um, when you see that the work didn't do as well that they as they hoped, or it wasn't produced as nicely, you start to see the people behind the books as well. So. Um, Yeah, this really provided the opportunity to discover that for the first time. And I'm so grateful that it did, because now it's hard to imagine my life as a reader or or a writer uh, without that interest in the past. If anything, Redond has really opened that door for me in other ways since.
1: You know, reading through the book and, you know, the the narrative keeps going and there's such a a great sense of, of, of narrative drive as we learn more about this story. And as we follow you, as you're writing the book, as you're putting the pieces together, but there's some wonderful things in the book, uh, which cause you to stop and reflect on something as ephemeral as someone's literary reputation. And these are obscure figures to most readers now, sort of M.K. Shiel or Gosworth. but in their day, they were larger figures and you actually circle back, to a book a novel uh, called the purple cloud which in some regards is considered the first science fiction novel of the 20th century and this was written by the first king of redonda am i correct
2: yep that's right
1: and there's there's just a beautiful précis and a, a critique of the book you know i think it's around page 80 in in your in your book about the penguin classics reissue and you realize oh my gosh, this this was a real writer who at one point had an audience and a readership and was a literary figure of of his day. And here's this work, which in many ways still speaks to an audience today that's just been dug up and rediscovered. And it's all all part of that broader project in your book of rediscovering the thread of this story, of, of these generations of literary figures who pass this thing down from generation to generation.
2: Yeah. And, and that, I think there's the obvious reason I'm reckoning with that is because as someone who's writing a book, you become aware that this is the fate of your book as well. And in fact of pretty much all books that no matter how popular you are at the time, uh, or even mildly popular, it will fade quickly and, um, Some cases almost completely, but I think the when I think about the that idea of of legacies and and the way that reputations go up and down, I I think it's sort of bittersweet. But when I talk to other people about it, they or I guess maybe the way I see it presented by other writers most commonly is the it's a little nihilistic. It's the it's a little they take that to mean that their writing doesn't matter. Or, or or, because it doesn't matter cosmically or on a big picture, then that should give you pause and, and give you perspective and that sort of thing. And I think that's true. Most people, you know, the work that we do now and certainly a lot of the work from writers of the past it is largely forgotten. But to be honest, I even writing this book, I think I feel more optimistic about it. Because even if someone like M.P. Shields' best work is largely forgotten... It's not gone, you know, in fact, in our digital sort of world, one thing I think a lot about is that a lot of what we produce now is put out, in a medium and into a into a digital world that is by design not going to exist in 20 years, whereas even the most hack novel was printed on paper that you can still read now. So mm-hmm. You know, Shields' novel, The Purple Cloud, was reissued by Penguin Classics, and so you could order it any, at any bookstore. It's in print, so it's, it's in the top 1% of books that are still around. But the truth is, he wrote 30 or 40 books, and if you want to, they're all still out there. They might be hard to find. They might be expensive. You might have to go to a library to find them, but they aren't forgotten entirely. So I think I actually take a lot of hope from looking at, you know, um the, the past of literature and specifically it might just be the happy accident of how books are are published and have been published which is they're on this incredibly durable uh surprisingly durable sometimes uh medium of paper between boards um it's certainly more durable than the way that we produce the vast majority of our um thoughts about the world today um you know back in the day you would have published pamphlets and those pamphlets sometimes are still around whereas you know, what I type into Twitter this morning, I'm not confident uh, will exist even five years from now. So there's something about the the surprising permanence of text that I think I, I actually am quite optimistic about and, and take a lot of solace in, um, maybe compared to some of my peers. It, it,
1: with, the, with the permanence of text, of, of, of books and old books and documents, um, the, the historical record, which sometimes can be obscured, You also work, I think, quite adroitly to position this story in the here and now with our different perspectives on the colonial enterprise and on colonialism itself. Uh, The island of Redonda is now politically part of Antigua and Barbuda. It is part of a Caribbean nation. You make clear in the book that uh, it's an inhospitable island for human habitation or settlement. Is it does not have freshwater resources. Um, And towards the end of the book, you talk about the restoration efforts to return the island to a more pristine state. And one of the things that I appreciated very much is that you have a sensitivity to the people who live in the region, who live adjacent to Redonda, to the stories of people who live on Montserrat, uh, and to... Our changing understanding and relationship with parts of the world that were colonized.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm. I mean, I'm. It's nice of you to say that. I'm certainly not someone who has, again, a lot of training in sort of the history of colonialism or that sort of thing. But I think it's hard to ignore the dynamic that that is somewhat at play with Redonda. I, I do think it's important to say that you know when we talk about history of colonialism. It, redonda is a sort of an outlier in that story on the one hand it is the story of a bunch of white people in europe blithely laying claim to a part of the world that you know largely inhabited by people of color and, and that sort of thing and so i think those that conversation is obviously relevant in some sense but the thing that's sort of intriguing about redonda is the is the way that it sort of elides some of those dynamics in that like you said Redonda is a hostile island. It's it's it doesn't have fresh water. The other thing that has made it hostile to humans is that it's ringed by these sheer vertical cliffs of hundreds of feet sometimes. The the peak of Redonda is about a thousand feet above sea level, but the only way up to it from the shore, the, the very small shoreline, is these two gullies um, that are quite steep and uh treacherous, as I <laughs> as I found out. Um and so it, it's not a place that has a permanent human population that's being either physically kicked out or even sort of culturally written over. Um the appeal of redonda to to its kings, certainly from the beginning was that it was empty. So it was a place you could lay your own mythology on top of it fairly safely because there was nothing being overwritten. Even in sort of the um bigger picture, history and culture of the Caribbean, there doesn't seem to be a lot attached to Redonda. It was seen as a way station and um, there's not really record of human inhabitants there at all um, to speak of. And so the fact that it's, and and I guess the other thing is that geographically it's not really significant. Um, The reason it's part of Antigua and Barbuda, even though it's geographically closer to Montserrat, doesn't really have anything to do with love for the island or even use. Uh, I think it, if I remember right, someone told me it actually had more to do as a naval calculation because there's something to do with how borders are defined. And the so, if you claim Redonda as part of Antigua and Barbuda, it ensures you a certain territory around the island as well. Uh, sort of above my pay grade, but it, so it's all to say that Redonda is sort of this curio, and not and not alone. I mean, there's a there's a lot of islands, small insignificant islands throughout the Caribbean and throughout lots of parts of the world. Um when I went down there, actually, one of the most sobering and sort of usefully deflating moments for me was I got to talk to a classroom of students in Montserrat. And so these are kids who've looked out across at Redonda their whole lives. And I was so excited to ask them, you know, what does it mean to you? Hoping to hear this gr- a, a grand sort of story or at least a story of like personal interest and significance. And they were so confused why anyone would care about Redonda. And I realized it, it was sort of like if someone came up to you or I and said, you know, they were the king of one particular tree in your backyard, mm-hmm. you might just sort of think why that, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me. Why would it mean something to you? Um, so those dynamics are certainly there. And I think worthy of, of discussion, but Redonda is sort of an outlier in all kinds of ways. I think in that conversation, it's, it's sort of a unique specimen too.
1: Well, one of the things that I appreciate is that you're writing all of this as a professional writer who's living in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, which is about as far from the Caribbean as you can, you can be physically or in terms <laughs> of climate. Um, yes. And your awareness, uh, your situational awareness of, of where the story is, where you are, and also this this lovely evocation of Edmonton as a literary city in the north of Canada, north of all of our other major urban centers in terms of being a large city that's that's towards the, the northern part of the country and the particular literary ecosystem uh, in Edmonton, which is sort of uh, on the frontier as opposed to being literary London. Do you have any theory about Edmonton itself as a literary City or about the community of writers that you've known in Edmonton, because there seems to be a lot of imaginative writing that comes from writers who, who've lived in Edmonton.
2: Oh yeah, I, I'm. I should say I'm not a native Edmontonian. I um I'm originally from Vancouver, so I didn't grow up here or attend school here, but I've lived here pretty much my entire adult life. And I think Edmonton, because of its I mean, there are other center urban centers that are, are northern, of course, and the north itself. You know, the territories are their own. Uh, you know, a whole other conversation. But I think because Edmonton is quite far away from the U.S. border, it's far away from a lot of other um, large Canadian centers. There's a real sense of resilience here, and also a sense that writers have to stick together. Um, a common conversation you'll have in Edmonton is asking someone why they're here. (laughs) And I, we didn't ask that in Vancouver when I was growing up because Vancouver was beautiful. And, you know, there were obvious reasons that someone might want to live there. Whereas in Edmonton, it's not as obvious always. So I think writers are very grateful to have other writers around. Um, We know that we're sort of fighting against um, geographic forces where, you know, it's easier, I think, in some senses to, if you want to have a career that gets noticed, to live somewhere else. Um, and politically, you know, Alberta has not always made it easy for its artists to live and survive and thrive. So when artists show up, I think there's a real sense of happiness. There's very little jealousy among writers in Edmonton, uh, in my experience, which is just a wonderful feeling to have where we're all rooting for one another, we pass work to one another. I assume that's true of some sense of other places, but, um, I, it's one thing I really value about the writers here. And certainly his, it's been true throughout history. I mean, when you look at the university of Alberta, uh, we have new S press here, which has been publishing for decades. Um, that sense of we got to stick together because we all sort of suffer if someone leaves the scene, um, is pretty ingrained to our, to writers and pro- I think artists of all stripes here. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I position it in the book sort of as like, you said, it is sort of this outpost. I know most readers don't know Edmonton that well. Um, but I think maybe because of that, uh, because of where we're located, it actually has a really lovely, warm community feel to it. Um, and it's one that's, that's, you know, I love the writer writing community, Edmonton, they've been very good to me as well. So, um, I, in fact, I think it was basically just an excuse. I just wanted to say Edmonton on the page as many times as I could, because, uh, because I, I do love it here and, and, uh, and think it has a lot to offer.
1: And you were a writer in residence in the Edmonton public library system, were you not during the writing of this book? Do you did a residency with? Yeah, that's library? right.
2: It was actually the year that I, I re- I just, I realized this was going to be a book. Uh, I was a writer in residence at some library sort of in the surrounding Edmonton area. And, um, Part of the the great privilege of being a writer in residence is you get time dedicated to your own projects. And so I didn't quite have a book project in mind. And then it, it's one of those things where I I looked back and realized I'd been thinking about this story of the Kingdom of Redonda for, you know, four or five years, but hadn't realized quite how much space in my mind it had taken up. And so that was the point where it clicked. And I thought, okay, now's the time to to pursue this.
1: I have two two comparisons or two experiences to relate to you as, as I as I read your book this week. One is that in in many ways, in many many aspects, reading this book, which is so beautifully written and so beautifully composed, like it's it's so clear and yet there's so much happening in the book, made me think of the fictional worlds of Wes Anderson, of a Wes Anderson movie. Has anyone mentioned anything like that to you uh, upon reading this book? Interesting.
2: Not Wes Anderson specifically. I mean, I you, you've said v- several very nice things about the book. And and I think that's the nicest compliment, actually, because Wes Anderson's work is so clean. It's quirky, but very clean. And my fear with this story was that it was just hopelessly cluttered. So if I have at all conveyed anything that feels like that, th- that's a success, I
1: think. Uh, for uh, my experience uh, was was just one of, of of real joy reading the book because it is transporting. There's a lot of heavy stuff happening in the world right now as as we continue to to deal with the, the pandemic, with the war in Ukraine, with uh, economies and 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 political systems uh, crashing. Uh, it's in some ways a balm to be able to escape into a story like this, which is a a nonfiction story, uh, but which has, I think, a real thoughtfulness and a gentleness to it. And the other comparison, comparisons can be invidious, but um, to me, this is a a beautifully composed nonfiction book that has the same intricacy as a David Mitchell novel. And I don't know if you are familiar with David Mitchell's novels like... uh, The Bone Clocks or Number Nine Dream or Cloud Atlas, Mm -hmm. but he's able to bring so many elements of the real world of history and of travel and of culture and build frames within frames without ever losing the reader. But there's a a gorgeousness in terms of the intricacy of, of the design of the book and just kudos to you and Perhaps this leads to a question about the editing of this manuscript and about the process of putting this together, and what was that like? And you, you acknowledge your publisher in the acknowledgements that from the first phone call, your publisher got the idea and understood what you wanted to do, but tell us more about the actual uh, polishing and the, and the completion of the book.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great question and and I it's that sort of work is so often invisible. I'm happy to sort of spell it out a bit. I should say the first thing so I I I did describe the book in a phone call to my publisher Dan Wells originally which was very liberating because writing down the story for a long time was hard to figure out what the through line was, but I felt it was a story it's fun to talk about. I'm having fun, you know, talking about it with you and it's always fun. It's like a dinner party Yarn that's that's always always good for a laugh, and yet trying to figure out how to fit it into a book, solving the structure of the book was really the biggest single problem that I had. I had several different outlines. I thought I was I had started writing in earnest um and ha- with a completely different outline than I ended up with. Uh, a friend of mine, Jana Pruden, is a features writer at the Globe and Mail, and she is sort of my structure guru where I, if i need help with with structure she she's very good at thinking through sort of how you can arrange a story and make the various pieces sort of click and so you know when you mentioned david mitchell for instance he's a very elegant and beautiful writer but the thing i love about his work the most is that he really understands structure and i think when that you have a structure that suits your story um it becomes invisible and the, the reader doesn't need to burden themselves with tracking it or thinking about it, but it really sets up each piece of the story to click into place. So um, he was someone I was probably subconsciously borrowing from because his books, you know, are different every time. And, and I think depending on the story he's trying to tell. So with Redonda, this the structure of figuring out how to balance the historical work with, with the, my character in the present day, discovering the story, was critical also the balancing the tones i think was a big challenge because of course the the king characters speak in character they speak in this mock royal sort of tone and so understanding what their true intentions were what the, to what extent they really believed any of this um could prove difficult and i didn't want the reader to be confused by that either so that's another function of my character is to pop in and and point out when something weird is happening, um, that the reader's not wrong if they're furrowing their brow at a certain moment. But as, as, far, I mean, as far as it came together, I wanted it to move chronologically. And so um, it, it took a while to gather the material. Um, and a big part of the revising process, my partner Kate was a really good uh, voice for this sort of thing. And Dan at, at Biblioasis, who was also my editor, Um, they both had a really good sense of, um, a lot of it was actually just cutting off the edges. I mentioned it's, it's this book of footnotes. And so there were all these detours I wanted to go down. And as a researcher, I learned you tend to put a little bit more, if something's hard to find out, you tend to give it more importance and more weight. And so I had to be reminded that the reader might not care quite as much as I did about certain <laughs> details or certain stories. And so wisely, I think some of that stuff got cut off because ultimately it's not a book about M.P. Shield. It's not a book about John Gosworth or John Wynne Tyson or Javier Marias. It's a book about Redonda. And so despite a lot of interesting detours in those writers' lives, they're all fascinating, complicated people. Um, I had to stick with w- what informed you know the this this one strange part of their life. So a lot of the book was once I had that general structure in place. A lot of it was just paring off the edges and trying to simplify the prose as much as possible. Because when the story is uh, could come off jumbled, uh, I wanted at least the, the prose to be clear to, uh, clear and, and easy for the reader to follow.
1: It, it reads like a dream, and uh, the aspect of the story of redonda and it's also a story of literary community and of you know transmission of of this story from generation to generation and you know the the creation of a, a royal court by proclamation where i think alice monroe is the duchess of ontario <laughs> she sure is yeah yeah um, when you encounter and you receive some some support and encouragement uh, from Marina Warner, who's like you know an extremely accomplished, uh, I think she's now a Dame Commander of the British Empire in in real life, but uh, she's also part of this this court or this this apparatus around uh, the the Kingdom of Redonda. Um, did it uh, change your perception of how writers? can be both terrible but also really wonderful with one another and really supportive of one another.
2: Yeah, it's it it's I think you're right. It certainly is a book on one level about community and friendship. And the kingdom and all its trappings is sort of a way for these awkward eccentric men to sort of codify those friendships in that indirect way that men sometimes seem to need to, where uh, it, it's not as simple as, you know, inviting your friend over to talk, you have to invite him over and knight him. And and mm-hmm. through this shared joke, um, it'll that's what allows you to spend that time together. And then, you know, all the other elements of friendship sort of follow from that. So I think that's certainly true. One thing that I love about this story is that Redonda, when you see the names of some of these people who've been named to the courts, so you mentioned Alice Monroe. she was named to the court by that Spanish novelist Javier Marias, Um and his court includes, you know, the architect Frank Gehry and filmmakers like Francis Ford Coppola, uh, novelists like Umberto Echo. J- there's jewelry makers and watchmakers and you know, all these sorts of creative people. And really the only thing they have in common is their belief in this strange little story. Um, that really is is ultimately what what unites them. Certainly if you look across generations of King, these are writers who who work in different genres, they live in different places. But Redonda is this thing that binds them together and just by virtue of believing in this story, and of course that's why it's fitting that writers are the Kings because writers believe in story above so many other things that just wanting to keep this strange story going and to not let it end or die out prematurely. Um, it does create this really unexpected group of this unexpected community. Uh, I was going to say brotherhood and it's largely men, although that's changed a little bit in recent years, but you know, when you talk, I got to t- as you say, I got to talk to Marina Warner who is such a impressive intelligent person she, this is like this. This funny common ground she has with Javier Maria's, where they don't necessarily write about similar things. As Byatt is in uh, Maria's court as well. Um, like I said, filmmakers, designers. So it just allows this group of people to come together in just such a curious and unexpected way. Uh, I think the unexpectedness is part of the fun. Um, When I talk about this book in front of audiences, the Alice Monroe line is inevitably the one that delights people, because Alice Monroe doesn't give interviews really anymore. But she issued a public statement saying that she was so pleased to accept the title of Duchess of Ontario. And so there's something about that sense of play. um, Yeah, it, it creates these bonds and also brings people out of their shell. It allows them to interact with one another in a new and sort of unexpected
1: way. I so appreciated reading the book. I was so happy to be asked to to have a chat with you, Michael, and to be given the opportunity to read the book so soon after it was published in September of this year. And I really sincerely hope that it finds a really broad readership because I think this is a book that really will touch and can appeal to people who just love books and who love good stories, um, who love uh, that sense of... Uh, of wonder and discovery, um, and you you take us as readers so delightfully down the rabbit hole, if you know what I'm saying.
2: Uh, that that's certainly the goal. So I, it's very kind of you to say thank you.
1: Is there anything we we haven't chatted about today that, you know, as you're thinking about the book that's recently been published that you'd like to put out there um, that that we could put in the podcast?
2: Um, well, we didn't talk about it, but if, for people who are interested in this story, it's sort of unexpectedly become topical again, because the week, I think it was two days before the official publication date, Javier Marias, the Spanish novelist, passed away um, unexpectedly, insofar as the the public didn't really know that he was ill. And so a lot of the book is about this question of succession and Mm -hmm. how do you choose who carries on telling the story once you die? And Marius is someone who I know took the story seriously enough to see it carry on. I feel pretty confident in that. And yet we actually still don't know who he named as his successor. So... We're sort of in this moment, unique moment of flux. He's been the king or, or the king of his particular branch of the kingdom for the last 25 years. And so it was very unexpected to me that this question would suddenly pop up. But there was an article in the Times of London just, I think, two days ago that was about what happens now. And of course, this is a story that lived through the UK press for so many decades that mm-hmm. it's. it was just interesting to me and bittersweet um, that it, it suddenly became topical again uh, in this way uh Marius was just a writer i i really admired and loved and so it's um sad on 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 that level and I, I suppose there's just a part of me that hopes given the curious ways that the kingdom has been passed down so far there's sort of blood pacts and as from my reading you know the signed documents found in the bilge of boats that were about to be sunk to the ocean floor there's part of me that still holds out hope that Marius has some sort of suitably theatrical uh, revealed that's, that hasn't quite been made public yet. So I'm I'm hopeful that the next chapter will be announced soon. But for readers who are interested, they may be interested to know that the kingdom actually is in a unique moment and an interesting moment in its history as we speak. And that hopefully we'll have some clarity on soon.
1: It, isn't it uncanny that it, it happens at exactly the same moment as the the Queen of England passes away of old age, dies of old age, and all of these questions about the future of the British Commonwealth and, uh, you know, the relationship of island nations to to Great Britain and the, the, the relevance uh, or possible irrelevance of the monarchy all surfaced in the month of September. I know that these things cannot be planned. But it is almost like a cosmic coincidence that Marias passes, the Queen passes, and these, in many ways, um, a serious global political, geopolitical conversation occurring, and also this literary conversation, which I think after perhaps a respectful period of of observance, the Times can now start to write about things like this again, right? The the period of mourning eases, and uh, you can write about redonda without seeming to disrespect the the queen but yes <laughs> it, 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 you just could not have have planned it this way but it, it actually is it is almost a perfect echo of that conversation
2: yeah and i think we're seeing now and you know not to push this parallel too far but you know when king charles takes over i think a lot of people suddenly realize that they've thought of the monarchy as this very stable and permanent enterprise and yet the person running it dictates a lot of how uh you know how it will continue to run in the future so i think Redondans and people who care about this the the slightly goofier literary version of this there's similar questions because anyone who cares about the story knows that it's fragile certainly more Mm -hmm. fragile than the british monarchy and uh, Mm -hmm. without the right ruler um things can fall into disrepair pretty quickly absolutely
1: Michael I think this is just a perfect juncture for for me to thank you again and just say like this has been a really rich conversation for me uh today and I'm so so happy to be able to uh to speak with you and uh to exchange thoughts about this book and to hear your thoughts as as the author of the book uh, about its creation um it's it's really good it's 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 really a special book
2: I'm so glad thank you Peter it's such a pleasure to talk to you as well
0: That was Peter Schneider in conversation with Michael Hingston about his latest Try Not To Be Strange, The Curious History of the Kingdom of Redonda. Available now from Perfect Books on Elkin Street and independent bookstores across the country. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.